This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The highest-ranking Republican in the state legislature, Bill Cadman, recently said he didn't think he'd be the president of the Senate if it weren't for the efforts of a conservative advocacy group called Americans for Prosperity. AFP is guided by the billionaire brothers and political donors Charles and David Koch. Nationally, the group will spend hundreds of millions of dollars on the 2016 election. Today, a closer look at AFP's agenda in Colorado. Let's start with its state director, Michael Fields. Welcome to the program. It's great to be out with you, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, What do you think of the senator's comments? Uh, Can you take credit for the Republicans gaining control of the state Senate in 2014 for the first time in a decade and thus making him president? The point that he was largely trying to make uh, was that our organization really focuses in on policy issues um, and these policy issues like defending Tabor, you know, addressing the issues with Obamacare uh, really set the tone for some of the discussions that are happening across the state and led to uh, a lot of what the Republicans were talking about and are talking about at the state capitol. And it really just reflects what, what people are thinking right now. So I think that was the broader issue. What uh, some people are thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into what you are advocating at the State House. Um, so you put out a list of six priorities, and uh, you've already mentioned some of them. The first among them is to protect the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Specifically, you've asked lawmakers to sign a pledge not to support the governor's plan to reclassify a fee that hospitals pay so that it no longer counts against the Tabor limit. How many lawmakers have signed the pledge? So we had uh, several lawmakers, both in the House and Senate, that signed it. Um, there's a lot of uh, legislators, though, that will not sign pledges at all, uh, which is fine. I think what we tried to do with that petition is start the discussion early on in the process. It was before session even started. And really, we saw it as, as an end run around Tabor. Tabor's in place to allow people to vote on tax increases. You know, this hospital provider fee or tax was counted under these Tabor caps uh, since it started in 2009. And we thought that it should continue to be and that uh, the government should really focus not on, on short-term fixes, uh, but looking at the long haul, looking at things like para-reform, looking at things like uh, how much money we're spending on health care to you know, address really the, the budget issues in general. Para is public employees' retirement. How many lawmakers have signed the pledge? I'd have to look at the numbers exactly. To those who don't sign it, or potentially Republicans that vote in favor of reclassifying the hospital fee, are those candidates you would then target in a future race? So as Americans for Prosperity, we don't get involved in in elections, primary elections. We will educate voters on people's positions. Um, And so, you know, regardless of their party, political party, we we let people know what uh, legislators see uh, when they look at Tabor and think, you know, do do people have a a right to have a vote on these things? Um, And I think, you know, it was clear when the governor came out and said, basically, the people won't approve this. Polling shows that uh, they're not going to accept this kind of fix. Um, obviously, he's trying to get around going to the people, making the case, um, and really making sure that, that, that the people have a, have a say in it. A conservative outlet recorded the governor's comments at an event in which he said that uh, taxes in general wouldn't fly before voters in Colorado. Uh, you can hear him talk about that at our website, cprnews.org. Um, to this idea that AFP is issue-focused and not candidate-focused, There are examples in Colorado and elsewhere of issue ads that have run uh, with backing from AFP, but that have been only thinly veiled issue ads. They mention candidates. Uh, They can't say vote for or against a a given candidate. But is it disingenuous to say it's it's merely an, an issue oriented 
group. No, because you won't see personal attacks. You won't see uh, things that aren't issue based. And so letting people know, you know, and, and a lot of times before they vote or just at random times. So we've, you know, we send out mailers right now. A lot of times these people do, uh, they run in elections and they, and they say, we're going to do this, this and this and holding them accountable, I think is, is an important job that we do. Let's go back to the hospital fee. So attorneys for the previous governor, who's a Democrat, and the governor before him, who's a Republican, have both said that uh, it qualifies as a fee, not a tax. Uh, The Republican former attorney general has said that as well. He's now mayor of Colorado Springs. Why do you call it a tax when it's something that hospitals agreed to pay and that they did so with a commitment not to pass it on to patients? Well, it's been in the general fund um, up until this point. And, you know, when you look at other enterprises, this is a case where there's no there there. Um, and you look at enterprises like higher ed, um, some of the other ones, there's a physical building, there's something that's going on. This is more a bank account. So the legality, I think, is, is up in the air. Obviously, you've had uh, opinions on both sides of this. Um, but our main point is to say, uh, regardless of the legality, there still is should it happen or not. And with a $27 billion state budget, uh, we think that the state government has enough money to prioritize to figure out how to best use that money. And if they want to make a case to the people, um, they're more than welcome to do that. Um, but I think as you, as the governor said, um, there's, there's really no appetite. And that's because uh, the state government hasn't proven that they are using the money that they have most efficiently, most effectively. The governor would tell you that uh, $27 billion may sound like a lot, but that it's not enough to meet the needs of the state. He'd point to the billion dollars in cuts to K-12 through education, for instance. When you say that the, they haven't properly prioritized the budget, give me examples. Where do you think there's money to be freed up? Well, I think healthcare is the biggest one right now that with Medicaid expansion, um, you're looking at healthcare is is 30% of the budget now, and that has grown significantly uh, in the past decade or so, um, and especially since Medicaid's been expanded. And they'll argue, you know, 90 plus percent comes from the federal government, so it's not really coming from the state. But when it comes down to it, Coloradans pay taxes across the board, and we have a $19 trillion debt as a country. And even the governor pointed this out in an interview that you had with him. He said people are moving here in droves. You know, millennials are coming here. Entrepreneurs are coming here. Uh, I think if it was as dire as it's made out to be, the, this, the budget situation, that you wouldn't have people moving here. You'd have people leaving. And that's just not the case. And Tabor's been a good check on making sure that there are efficiencies. And I think people have had opportunities to vote for tax increases and, and have really shut it down by a two-to-one margin. And so they have to make the case to the people. I want to go back to the Medicaid expansion. The hospital provider fee largely allowed the state to expand coverage for children. Would you shrink the roles of children on Medicaid? Do you think there are people on Medicaid who don't belong on it? And if so, who are they? Well, I think there's people even that cho- that are on Medicaid right now that wouldn't choose to be on Medicaid, uh, but they're forced onto Medicaid because of the system the way it is, is if you fall under a certain amount, you can't even buy this, you know, use the subsidy uh, that you could otherwise get and buy your own coverage in, in the private market. And so I think that, that this is something that has to be looked at in every state, not just here in Colorado, on who, uh, you know, what Medicaid needs to look like and what reimbursement rates need to look like for doctors to be able to cover these people. Because if you stretch too thin, then nobody gets quality care. Have you spoken with people who are forced onto Medicaid and don't want to be there? So we've run into, we were talking to some legislators and they talked about this issue and they've talked to people uh, that said, you know what, we're, we're on the borderline, but we would like to buy better insurance and not be stuck into the system. Um, but we don't have that option right now. And do you believe that there are enough people in your mind who don't belong on Medicaid to free up enough money, for instance, to address the billion dollars 
in cuts to K through 12 education. What do you think is the potential savings in Medicaid? Uh, I think, you know, the studies will have to look at it, and it's a growing uh, sector right now. More and more people, you know, in the last couple of years have gone on to, to Medicaid and, and other programs. I think, you know, there are structural uh, issues with how much money, you know, are, are we able to spend on, on education, but those are healthy discussions. We'll get back to some of these priorities in a moment, but I'm curious, AFP does not have chapters in every state. Why focus here in Colorado? Yeah, so we have, I think, 35 chapters right now, um, and we're growing, trying to get into to every state, as opposed to popular opinion that, you know, the Koch brothers are just funding this whole thing. That's not the case. Uh, majority, vast majority of our money here in Colorado comes from Colorado donors. And so as we build a chapter, you know, it's really getting buy-in from activists, from people, um, you know, that are going to be a donor base, too, for that state. And so we have 127,000 activists here. So these are people that have signed a petition or gone door to door for us. So building up interest and saying, you know what, this is a um, policy issue, a purple state. Um, So it's the swing state nature of Colorado, do you think, that that has made AFP interested in addition to what it sees as people who are interested in the group? Well, there's no doubt that policy-wise, you kind of have the back and forth. And are there going to be tax increases or not? Are there going to be, you know, what's going to happen in health care? Um, there are places like Jefferson County here in Colorado that are, you know, a swing county of a swing state of a swing country, really looking at it that way and saying, you know what, if we can have policy impacts in a state like this, uh, that we could have that in other places too. Now, when you say that uh, the vast majority of your funding comes from individuals in the states in which you operate, we, we sort of have to take your word on that because you don't have to disclose your donors. That's correct. We don't uh, disclose our donors. And and really, that's because of the fact that for the, our whole country, we've had uh, anonymous speech. And that has been uh, you know something that all the way back to the founding days that people have been able to participate in anonymous speech. And I think one part of it, too, is if you look at well, what the Koch brothers go through, for example, you look at the, the scrutiny, the criticism and everything else, you have business people or people that have small businesses here in Colorado that say, you know what, I don't know if I really want to go through that, but I do care about these issues and I do want to participate in this process. You've been active in Colorado, I think, for about seven years. Is that right? Sounds right. How is your presence ramped up over the years? I think one thing that we've done is really focused in on a community model. And so we have nine field directors. These are full-time people. Um, and they have some part-time people under them. And then they... And really not just in election years or even all the years next to election yeah, years. So we, we built up, you know, in the last couple of years, if you look at 2014, uh, we had five field directors. Last year, we went up to seven. This year, we've gone up to nine. You know, for example, my field director in Jefferson County went to high, high school in Jefferson County, knows people in Jefferson County. And so we get involved everything from, you know, a, a bag tax in Fort Collins all the way up to uh, national issues. And we've gotten definitely gotten more involved at the state level, at the Capitol, um, and, and we want to continue to do so. I want to ask a little bit about how AFP decides to get involved in a given issue. So you mentioned Jefferson County and uh, Americans for Prosperity was very active in the school board race there. That was last year when three conservative school board members were recalled by voters. Uh, you had originally supported those board members as well as candidates in the Douglas County. Uh, AFP also got involved in a ballot measure in Colorado Springs last year when the Republican mayor wanted to raise taxes to improve roads. It drew a headline in the Washington Post uh, that says the potholes of Colorado Springs draw the attention of Koch Brothers Group. These seem comparatively like small issues, you know, if you put them up against the Affordable Care Act, for instance. How do you decide which smaller causes to get involved in? Well, the first thing we do is talk to our activist base. We talk to our field directors and really looking at, you know, timing of things. So obviously last year, those were bigger issues, even though they were local issues. 
I want to go back to some of the big issues for AFP in Colorado. So another one is to hold the state's health exchange, Connect for Health Colorado, accountable. Lawmakers acted on that uh, last year, ordering a more thorough audit after a first audit found that the exchange needed better financial accounting and uh, didn't ensure that millions in public money were being spent according to the exchange's own rules. Uh, The deeper audit is scheduled to start next summer. What more would you like to see done? Well, at the time, uh, you're correct, when we came out with our policy agenda, what we didn't know was this process was going to take two or three years down the road in order to get this done, while 83,000 people had just lost their insurance, you know, based on the co-op collapse. And so what we tried to do, and, and we were successful this session, was to move that up. You know, we look at it and say, this should be a top priority. Are you more interested in getting rid of Obamacare or making sure that it runs smoothly? Well, I think number one priority is we don't agree with Obamacare and want to get rid of it. But two, if we're going to have Obamacare in place, it's like any other government entity where we're going to say, you know, we need to make sure that it's running the best that it can and running efficiently and we're not wasting money. Uh, We're not just going to say, you know, well, it's in place and we don't agree. And so we'll just let it do whatever it wants. Uh, You know, but it really it plays into a larger picture in terms of healthcare. We talked a little bit about, you know, healthcare with Medicaid expansion and that kind of thing. But also uh, on the ballot this November, we have Amendment 69, which is a single payer proposal uh, that we are fighting against and actively already fighting against going door to door, making phone calls, uh, you know, putting out digital ads and websites uh, about the dangers of this proposal. And in a rare twist, you find yourself uh, on, on the same side as the governor of Colorado here, the Democrat, John Higginlooper. Well, we do sometimes and we do uh, on some energy issues, too. Well, speaking of energy, another priority for AFP is blocking the Obama administration's energy plan. You got some help from the Supreme Court recently, which put a temporary stay on that plan to reduce emissions from coal plants. Uh, The governor in that case says he's going ahead anyway and uh, that the Supreme Court's decision doesn't prohibit states from acting. He wants to convert some coal plants to natural gas ones and expects the state to develop more wind and solar power. Why are you working to change that in Colorado? Well, you look at the impact that this has on a, on a family. You looked at a study and it was $610 per family per year in additional costs that would come from this clean power plant. Proponents say that uh, this could happen with little or no increases. We believe that, that it will have a significant impact and have a significant impact on jobs, too. Um, and the governor talked about, you know, taking, you know, several a period of time to retrain people in certain areas or something say, for us, the free market should be deciding that. Uh, we already in Colorado have some of the toughest uh, standards when it comes to emissions and investment will flood to an area that has a, a good future. And the government saying, you know, no, you guys need to shut this one, this plant down and open this one and move this here. Um, I just don't think that the government's the best uh, entity to do that. And then the Supreme Court comes in and puts a stay on it. And thankfully, um, last year, the, uh, the attorney general did join this lawsuit. Um, and so we'll see how this plays out as time goes on. The state attorney general, Cynthia Kaufman, to what extent was AFP able to influence her, do you think? Well, I mean, you're never quite sure on why people make certain decisions. Um, I think she looked at the facts and, and realized that, um, you know, there was a, 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 obviously a question on, on the legality of this going on. And so uh, we definitely were ahead of this in terms of having people sign petitions and contact their legislature, including the attorney general, to join this lawsuit and, and to get the ball rolling here in Colorado. Do you know if AFP in Colorado met with the attorney general? Uh, we did not meet with her directly on this. You talk about the free market acting here, and there would be some who'd argue that the free market hasn't done a a very good job in this regard. 
Does AFP have an official position on humans' role in climate change? Well, I think if you look at the members of AFP, the people involved with AFP, we'll probably have a difference of opinion on, um, you know, really what the impact is, if it's happening, um, you know, how much, you know, man is contributing to that. But I think the consensus is the government shouldn't be, you know, directing the economy on how to deal with this. The free market should decide how to, um, you know, increase technology, make things more efficient. The Koch brothers who founded Americans for Prosperity have a newer group that is aimed at Latinos. It's called the Libre Initiative, and it's working in nine states, Colorado, one of them. Uh, According to our report in The Washington Post, it's offering services like tax preparation and driver's license classes to build goodwill in the Latino community, food banks and wellness checkups as well. How are you working with the Libre Initiative in Colorado? And um, are, are Latinos an important part of your outreach? Well, there's no doubt they're an important part of the network's outreach. We we have field directors in areas that have, uh, you know, heavy Hispanic populations here in Colorado, uh, Adams County and Pueblo County. Uh, but we look at it like um, a lot of the in the Latino community, a lot of the issues are the same issues that the rest of the Colorado is facing. School choice, for example, school choice is a big issue in these communities to say, you know what, we want our kids to have the best education possible. We want choice in education to be able to send them where we think is best for them. Let's talk about one more of your priorities in Colorado this year. Quoting from your website, uh, protect the right to develop our resources, including opposing fracking bans. Uh, Is Americans for Prosperity involved in litigation over fracking bans, or are you working on this in other ways? So other ways. We're not involved in in litigation on this. Um, We know that um, there will be at least a couple ballot initiatives that end up on the November ballot. And also uh, any changes at the legislature, any you know rule changes or that kind of thing that they might bring up, uh, we're also in, involved in those uh, discussions too. The caucuses are coming up. And I just want to ask you a presidential question. And that is, if um, Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, is that a candidate whose issues AFP would support? It depends on what the issue is. And so there are some issues, um, just listening to Donald Trump, that I know um, AFP wouldn't agree with. Like um, what? There's, and um, I think, you know, some of the, the talks about what healthcare looks like, you know, and depending on, on which day he's talking about what, I think our positions are pretty clear. Um, we would be opposed to any kind of crony capitalism or saying, you know what, um, if certain people have impact and influence and they can, you know, work through the, the process to become friends with different uh, senators or congressmen or something like that and to get a deal for their company, uh, which he admitted he's, you know, participated in in the past, that we'd be against that. So whoever it is, if it's, you know, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders pushing free market ideas, we'll back them on that. If they're, you know, pushing the Keystone Pipeline, we'll back them on that too. So it really doesn't matter about the party. We'll focus in on the issues. You talk about crony capitalism, and some might look at the efforts of the Koch brothers and, and say that it is crony capitalism. I mean, here's a group that's, that's pushing for uh, more favorable conditions for the energy industry in which the Kochs have made a fortune. They're really pushing for the free market in general and saying, you know what, we want to get rid of, of subsidies, of things that might even benefit companies that they have. And they say, you know what, that's fine because the broader system is benefited by the fact that there's a level playing field. Aren't there you huge tax breaks for oil and gas, for instance? Uh, there are. And, they, and, and the Koch brothers would say, looking at it, they would want a level playing field across the board. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Michael Fields is state director for Americans for Prosperity, which advocates for limited government. Coming up, more about the group's strategy and funding from an investigative reporter at Politico. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
As we heard before the break, Americans for Prosperity wields real power in this state. The president of the Colorado Senate says he wouldn't have the job if it weren't for AFP and its conservative backers. Let's get more context on this group, which was founded by the billionaire Koch brothers. Ken Vogel is chief investigative reporter at Politico. He covers money in politics. And welcome to the program, Ken. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ryan. What does AFP see itself as addressing uh, what need in American politics today? Well, certainly the policy issues that uh, that Michael talked about are uh, very high up on sort of their animating causes. But from a political perspective, and there is really a very strong political motivation behind Americans for Prosperity, at its founding, it was seen as an effort to sort of offset what the unions had done for the left, for liberals, for Democrats. And that is to create what they call permanent infrastructure, including ground troops, to go out and uh, win policy fights for conservatives, mostly Republicans, but also win political fights. Uh, and you hear that tension as Michael was talking in, in, in his interview with you uh, between the policy and the political. And that's a core tension, not just within Americans for Prosperity, but within this broader network of organizations that the Koch brothers and the operatives who work for them uh, have created that is a tremendous force in American politics and one that doesn't necessarily abide by traditional partisan orthodoxy. So one that, while it does align for the most part with the interests and even some of the candidates and causes of the Republican Party, it's not completely so. And so there are ways in which the Koch Network and Americans for Prosperity do, in fact, push the Republican Party either to the right on fiscal issues or to the left on some civil libertarian issues. To the left. Give us an example of that. Uh, criminal justice reform is one, for instance, with the uh, Koch network, including Americans for Prosperity, but only really marginally Americans for Prosperity. Mostly some of the other groups in the Koch network have really uh, influenced the debate on uh, at the federal level and at the state level. That is calling for less stringent sentencing, uh, calling for more resources to be spent on public defenders, folks who can uh, who, who who represent uh, what, what they would say are disproportionately minority um, uh, 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 people who are brought into the criminal justice system. Uh, even on drug reform is another one where they have supported, they have spent, mo- they have donated money to the Cato Institute, for example, uh, which favors drug reform. Kind of uh, dovetails a little bit with with criminal justice reform, but certainly not a traditional Republican position. Have you ever seen AFP mobilize for a Democrat? Because we heard from the AFP state director here that, you know, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders supported a free market policy, the group would stand by them. I'm not necessarily aware of them mobilizing from an electoral perspective, but there certainly have been instances in which Democrats have uh, taken stances that they see as the right stances on their issues where they may have said nice things about them. Now, that's different from spending a significant amount of money in ways that could be seen as helping a Democrat win office. Uh, But I think that uh, that is part of that tension that I discussed between the policy and the political. The state director also told us that the vast majority of the money for Americans for Prosperity in Colorado does not come from the Koch brothers. 
um, that it's from individual donors in the states in which it operates. But of course, it doesn't have to disclose those donors. What can you say about whether that is the case, that that the majority of funding comes from individuals, not the Kochs? Well, as you suggest, there is no way to definitively answer that question. That said, one of the real powers of the Koch brothers and their network is their convening ability. That is, they have been able to bring in a huge group of very, very wealthy conservatives who mostly see eye to eye with them on some of these uh, animating fiscal issues that are really what they are seeking to uh, shape, who they have been able to bring together through these twice-a-year seminars, they call them, donor gatherings in uh, fancy resort hotels in warm areas, mostly during during the winter. And uh, they've actually met in Colorado during the summer in the past, although I think that they are now meeting mostly in in, uh, Southern California. But uh, their ability to raise money from all of these donors and and, uh, channel it through another nonprofit group that it's called Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce that then disseminates the money in grants to both groups that we think of as core parts of the Koch network, like Americans for Prosperity, like the Libre Initiative that you mentioned that reaches out to Hispanic voters. Concerned Veterans for America is another one that is a core part uh, of this organization, reaches out to, as the name would suggest, veterans on issues of uh, mostly fiscal issues, not necessarily national security issues, because again, the Koch see themselves as mostly focused focused on the fiscal issues, in fact, almost exclusively focused on the fiscal issues. And so uh, and so it is true that, that their power really does come from their ability to raise money from these other very wealthy conservatives. Now, uh, that said, the Koch brothers still do play a huge role both in the funding and in the convening of other donors and in the strategic decisions. That's why uh, you hear this shorthand of folks talking about the Koch brothers network. Okay, that idea that the Kochs play a critical role in strategic decisions seems to fly in the face a little bit of what we heard from AFP's state director, who says that it's really a grassroots organization that in the states where it operates decides what to pursue because of votes by, you know, local uh, volunteers uh, and members. Which is it? Um, Because there's this juxtaposition of this, this national group, right? getting involved in very, very local issues. Yeah, I think that there there is a tension there too. So there's a tension between the policy and the political, and then there is the tension between the grassroots and the top-down sort of command and control, which is something that uh, also plays itself out in the Koch brothers' business. Koch Industries, this multinational private conglomerate from which they draw their fortune estimated at about $40 billion each for Charles and David Koch. Uh, and so they very much like this idea, and it's it's critical to their efforts to recruit activists that, in fact, it is a grassroots organization some of my reporting suggests that not all of the decision-making is, in fact, from the local level. I think there is a balance. I think oftentimes the uh, it's less of a balance and the decision-making is coming more from the top-down central uh, command, which is shaped to a great extent by Charles Koch, particularly a little bit less so David Koch and some of Charles Koch's key lieutenants. 
There is a line in a story you wrote, uh, quoting an internal AFP document. While most organizations focus only on short bursts of activity around elections or legislative sessions, AFP is investing in creating a continuous culture of freedom year after year. What is the effect of having a group like this that's, you know, not responsive to a political party working year round in such an organized way? And how unusual is that maybe on the left and the right? Sure. I mean, AFP and and the Koch Network's ambitions are really unprecedented in American politics. I mean, we've never seen a privately funded, sort of privately held political machine that has invested so much over so long in an effort to really it, it is not it is not just lip service to say their goal is to change American politics, change the culture of American politics, and to some extent even the culture of America itself uh, to be one of sort of more personal responsibility and less role for the government. And whether they've been effective or not, you certainly hear folks on the left and even more so, frankly, on the right questioning whether they're spending their money through Americans for Prosperity and these other groups in an effective way. There is no questioning the ambition. And it comes at a time that the the parties themselves have seen their power and, and the amount of money available to them diminish. And mm. so it is, but there is sort of a vacuum for a group like the Koch Network or uh, efforts on the left that have been less successful in raising as much money to create this long-term permanent political and policy infrastructure that the Kochs talk about. But there is certainly the political landscape is ripe for a political operation like that, that the Kochs have created. The tax code considers them a social welfare group. I want to ask you about crony capitalism. You heard my exchange with AFP's state director about that. Um, The Koch brothers have taken a very public stance against the idea of influence peddling and close relationships between lawmakers and business people. Uh, Though, as we pointed out, there are significant subsidies for the oil and gas industry. Do you know of times where the Kochs themselves have been guilty of so-called crony capitalism, which publicly they're against? Well, they certainly do lobbying. Coke Industries does at the at the federal level and at the state and to some extent the local level, seeking uh, you know uh, uh, seeking the application of of regulations in a way that is favorable to them. Now they would draw a line and say, "But we are not seeking subsidies. We we don't want new subsidies to be in place that would say benefit the oil and gas industry from which Coke Industries uh, draws a significant, albeit diminishing." Uh, portion of its of its profits and its business but if those subsidies are in place, we are not going to disadvantages, disadvantage ourselves by refusing to take them. So you see this kind of fine line that they walk uh, when it comes to their own business interests. Now that said, Coke Industries has been tremendously successful over the years and has been it, it has had its most successful period in terms of sheer profits and growth during the Obama administration. So while they take issue with many of the policies advocated by liberals and by Democrats, including the Obama administration, they have done quite well. And the reason that, that they have done quite well is because the system sort of serves them fine as it is. So there is no need for them to spend all this money trying to influence policy and politics in a really public way that draws 
calls them into the spotlight and puts a target on their backs. If their sole goal is to just do well and make a lot of money, they're already doing that. So I think you have to look elsewhere other than at the bottom line motivation, the bottom line being their their personal fiscal bottom line and that of their company to uh, really figure out what is driving them. I don't think it's just a bottom line calculation. That is Ken Vogel. He covers money and politics for Politico, where he's chief investigative reporter. Earlier, we heard from Michael Fields, state director for Americans for Prosperity in Colorado. If you missed any of that conversation, you can hear it at CPRnews.org. We will be right back with a musical wonder. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We happened upon a remarkable spot for recording music back in 2013. It's an abandoned water tank in Rangeley, Colorado, on the West Slope. The acoustics are heavenly. first brought you this story, there was a campaign to save the tank. Donations poured in from all over the world, totaling almost $50,000. Since then, the tank's awkward entry has been replaced with a proper door, and there's a new control room made from an old shipping container. Well, now there's an effort to create an arts center associated with the tank. And former Denver musician Bruce Odland is leading that campaign. He's now a composer and sound artist in New York. Let's listen back to my 2013 interview with him. I asked him to describe the tank. It's so large, it's like you're standing next to a rocket, and you're like an ant looking at a Pepsi can. How big is it? It's really even hard to tell. But this is pretty big. It's rusted steel panels, it's silver-painted, it's got a lot of graffiti on it. When you go inside, it seems even larger. You can't even tell how big it is from the inside because your ears are trying to tell you, and... They think you're in the largest cathedral in the world. (laughs) If I had to guess, it's between 60 and 100 feet tall, maybe 30 or 40 feet across. And your voice lasts forever in there, so it seems to be infinite space to your ears. Tell us about your first encounter with the tank, um, you know, just in terms of, of making music there. I came to Colorado in 75, and I got put on this Chautauqua tour by a brilliant uh, arts administrator, Bob Sheets, who was putting these tours of uh, 60 artists together in a tent show to travel to small towns all over Colorado. And it was really thrilling. Our whole goal was to transform these communities with art. So we were in Rangeley, and I was the guy with um, headphones on all the time and a couple microphones recording the big rigs and the oil trucks and derricks and whatever else was there. I'd put together collages and I'd play them back for the people of the town so they hmm. hear themselves musically each night. This uh, 4 by 4 truck rolls up. Two burly guys say, are you that guy? I said, yeah. Come with us. I did. I got in. They drove up into these dirt hills. I'm getting nervous because, of course, by then everybody's seen Deliverance twice. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you get the point. Yes. Was this a good idea? Uh, and we come over this hill and we see this incredible, huge oil tank. They say, get in. I do. They say, is your microphone on? Yeah. They said, turn it up good and loud. I do. They go outside 
and they beat on the outside with two by fours and this thing reverberates like nothing I've ever heard but of course my needles are up way beyond 11 and my eyes are spinning around in their sockets because I'm listening really loud on headphones mm. I thought this would sound absolutely fabulous with a more subtle sound source came back and started recording there that night and I've been going back ever since it's just the most remarkable ultra cathedral sound it challenges you, it challenges all your senses the minute you go through that tube and you hear your first footstep lasts 10 seconds that's really something you're not prepared for On in the outside, the tank says Rio Grande. So I'm guessing it was built by the railroad company? We have all kinds of theories on that. And in spite of people trying to research it, we don't have a definite history of the tank. And one of the reasons is the minute you actually experience it, it's so transforming, it becomes sort of mythical. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how it got there. It only matters how it sounds because your senses are reeling with this. It's sort of like, you know, if you're on a roller coaster ride, do you wonder when it was built? You know, you're in the middle of the experience so thoroughly that you don't stop to think of practical things like who built it, what it was there for. There's quite a few different stories, but the thing that I, I wonder about, you know, there's no railroad in Rangeley. Where would the railroad even go? <laughs> it, it, it sounds like it, it may have a colorful history that's not entirely known. How do you get inside? You get inside almost like you would get inside a space capsule. You can get maybe a small guitar in there, but not a cello. You could get a trombone in there, but not a tuba. It's a small opening you kind of have to squeeze through like a porthole. And that's the only way in. And when you're in... Just the sound of you getting in, whoosh, lasts and lasts and lasts. So you've gone from being a creature who relies on your eyes to being a creature who relies on your ears simply by entering. You can hardly see a thing, and every sound you make is so physicalized, it lasts and lasts and lasts. You can hear that sound flying around in the space. You could point at it. It's like you could know exactly where that sound is. It's really overwhelming. You and a group of musicians have been making music inside the tank for many years, and I'd like to listen to a recording of you. Uh, this is with percussionist Mark McCoyne and trumpeter Ron Miles. It's really like a big echo chamber. And I, I wonder if it took a lot of experimentation, a lot of learning to make good music inside. Yeah, it's almost like being on a different planet, you know. Ron has an incredible ear, so he could learn 
how his trumpet responds. You can hear how it changes the color of the sound of the trumpet as the sound moves out and into the space. You, you can't really even tell when Ron stops playing and the tank starts playing. So he's taking his trumpet in the tank, but it's not like he's playing his trumpet in a recording studio and you're adding some reverberation to his trumpet. Oh, I, I love his... what you just said there, Bruce. You can't tell when Ron's trumpet stops playing and the tank starts playing. So in that way, it is like another instrument. Oh, it's, yeah, whatever you play in there, you're playing the tank. You could play the tank with the trumpet. You could play the tank with your voice. You could play the tank with the drum. But no matter what you do in there, you're playing tank music because the tank is the instrument. So if you play a note that the tank likes, it lasts twice as long as a note the tank doesn't like. <laughs> you're anthropomorphizing. I love it. Yeah, it's really eerie because what it is technically, the tank has an overtone series because it's so big and sound lasts long enough that notes that match up to... The distance of the tank up and down makes a wavelength. So you can actually sing, ah, and you hear the tank go, ah. It can shift a note almost uh, half a step. That is Bruce Odland, composer and sound artist in Croton on Hudson, New York. We spoke with him in 2013. He's leading a Kickstarter campaign to create an art center alongside the tank. That's in Rangeley, Colorado. Here's some more music recorded inside the tank, a piece from 1986 called Snowdrops, featuring Odland, Mark McCoyne, and Mark Fuller. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It wasn't Lee Mathis's idea to put cheesecake in jars. That actually came from his culinary instructor at Colorado Mesa University. But Mathis has made the business a success, selling online and at farmers markets. Mathis's company, Decadence Gourmet, just landed a Good Food Award, which honors, quote, authentic and responsibly produced food. I spoke with Lee Mathis back in 2014. It was for a series about Coloradans who create food for farmers markets. Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, always a pleasure. Uh, explain what cheesecake in a jar looks like and briefly what kind of flavors you pack into that jar. Uh, well, actually, it's truth in advertising. We actually bake uh, individual portion-sized cheesecakes in their own recyclable glass jars. Home cooks have been doing that for years, but back when I was going to school here at the culinary program, like you had mentioned, Dan Kirby had walked up to me one day and he was going, dude, you got to put the cheesecakes in a jar. And he had this big 32-ounce mason jar with him. And I'm going, yeah, right. Well, I was driving out to New Jersey to spend Christmas with my mom and driving back, I just couldn't get the idea out of my head. And about two months later, I walked into his office and slid one across the desk and I go, you mean like this? And he goes, you're nuts. And I said, yeah, well, you knew that when you enrolled me here. (laughs) (laughs) We've had some traditional recipes, but then we kind of pushed a boundary sometime. We do a habanero key lime, which we do a roasted habanero sugar and slice that in with the regular sugar. We just put out a new cheesecake here in Palisade, uh, Gewürztraminer lychee fruit. 
I'm a little bit of a pepperhead. And about a year or two ago, we launched a new product line or flavor line called our Savories. The highlight of this one is uh, what we call the El Diablo. It's a ghost pepper habanero cheesecake that uh, we bake off and top it with an ancho chipotle pesto. So I tried another one of the savory, and that was a garlic cheesecake. I the suppose, roasted garlic. Yeah. I, I have to say, because it had the word cheesecake on it, I guess I expected something even like a little sweet, but it is all garlic. And so this is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this is something you'd spread on toast? Uh, or crackers, something? chips. Yeah. Actually, if I mention to someone it's a savory appetizer cheesecake, there's a look like a deer in headlights. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we rebranded them as savory craft spreads. Now, are the cheesecakes, they are baked in the jars, you said? That, that means you oh, have yeah. ovens that are like just full of these little, little jars and cheesecakes? Exactly. Uh, we actually bake them in batches of 96. Every single jar is hand-piped. Sometimes we use water baths. Sometimes we use steam baths. It depends on like the gravity and density of the cheesecakes and what we're trying to get out of it. Uh, we always we try to use as much locally sourced produce and fruits as we can. Uh, we pair up with local vineyards out here when we do our vineyard series, like we do a Blackberry Cabernet and a Blueberry Merlot. It's just living in an area like we do in Grand Junction, in Colorado in a whole, we have an abundance of great produce and uh, vegetables and fruits around here. Why not use them? You know, just go farm to table. You don't have to use, go to chain box stores and get your stuff. It's so funny. You know, when I think of cheesecake, I think of the Golden Girls and their absolute inability to stop eating cheesecake once they start. I just don't know what to do. Let me get the cheesecake and we'll talk. <gasps> oh, my God. Blanche, what's wrong? Here we are in the middle of a crisis. And there's no cheesecake. <laughs> Didn't we buy one yesterday? Yes, but I found two gray hairs. <laughs> Blanche, you're over 50. Finding two gray hairs is no reason to eat a whole cheesecake. I found the two gray hairs in the cheesecake. What I liked about cheesecake in a jar is that I was forced to stop eating because I'd eaten the small jar of cheesecake. And so there's this kind of like built-in portion control. We've all been guilty of this. Growing up, you know, when I first started getting into cheesecake, my mom would go down to the store. She'd buy us one of those cheesecakes that's in a metal pan in the freezer section, you know, it's covered with cherries. And with any full-size cheesecake, the first night you have it, it's great. Second night, it's okay. Third night, eh, I don't know about this. The fourth night, it's a dog's dinner. Anything can be consumed, I think, eaten in moderation. I've dropped 60 pounds in the last year and a half, and I haven't done any major changes other than just watching what I eat. I'm amazed you have lost weight making cheesecake. Uh, what was your first career before you got into cooking? Because I understand you were doing something else before this. I got into the newspaper circulation sales business in 1975 and was in that business for about 20, 20 some years, maybe a little uh -huh. bit longer. And I was moving my offices from New Jersey out to Colorado. And I had a kind of a major medical problem where I, my, well, in a nutshell, my guts blew up. I was supposed to die. Oh. And I didn't. In Grand Junction, I ended up in Grand Junction. I was just driving a cab. And I said, this stinks. You know, I mean, hey, it's a nice cab company. I was making money. But I need to do something I, had, I, I like to do. And I've always loved cooking. I grew up on the Atlantic City boardwalk, tossing pizzas, doing silver dollar pancakes in the window. <laughs> so I called up the, it was in Mesa State College, said, you guys got a culinary program? They put me in touch with Dan. He didn't know me from Adam. Spent three hours the next day talking to me, and I enrolled the next day. And how old were you when you enrolled? Fifty-three. Fifty-three. May I ask if you were the oldest in your class? Uh, actually, no. Oh. There was a couple. There's a couple in there older than I. They didn't have my energy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can believe that. No. 
Well, the thing is, if you're lucky enough to find out what you have a passion for in life and you can figure out a way to actually make a living out of doing it, you're living the life of Riley, okay? I made 10 times more money when I was doing sales. I do understand that the recession took a toll on the business. You know what? We almost went out of business a few times. Um, we lost three of our major clients here in Vail and Grand Junction. And we we're taking catering gigs on to make 50 bucks just to make the thing. I was teaching cooking at the night courses out here at the college. You do what you got to do to survive. If you firmly believe in what you're doing, hey, get ready to make some sacrifices, you know? You mentioned earlier that uh, it's not a terribly lucrative job that you have there. Does it support you? Uh, yeah, no, it supports me now. Um, you know, I've had a life before where money was the most important thing. Uh, it's not anymore. My rent's paid, you know, family's taken care of. Our biggest thing right now is our investment packages. Because anytime we can reduce, reduce the production costs and the ingredient costs by buying in larger quantities, it's going to enable us to make a, a better profit per jar. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, bud. Lee Mathis owns Decadence Gourmet Cheesecakes in Grand Junction. We first spoke in 2014 for a series about Coloradans who create food for farmers' markets. He just won a Good Food Award. That's Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Oh, cheesecake munching on the cheesecake munching on the cheesecake. Cheesecake. Cheesecake munching on the cheesecake munching on the cheesecake. Cheesecake. Cheesecake, gobble, gobble, cheesecake, gobble, gobble, cheesecake.